Welcome to the Avowed Podcast. I'm Jasmine Lilly. I'm a contemporary wedding cake baker, living and creating in Bozeman, Montana. Every week, I explore how and why we are married in the modern world through conversations with wedding industry rebels, real couples, and generally badass people with something to say about love. I am beyond excited to announce that my favorite intersectional feminist wedding publication, Catalyst Wedding Magazine, has offered to partner with the Avowed Podcast, which means, in addition to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and of course, my own website, you can now link directly to all of our episodes through CatalystWedco.com. I love every bit of what they are contributing to this cultural conversation, and you will too. I mean, their tagline is love, sex, and marriage for woke folk, so yeah, it's awesome. In honor of this new chapter in our combined evolution, I am thrilled to bring you a conversation with Liz Susong, Catalyst's editor-in-chief. Liz opened up to me about her fiercely independent partnership with her husband, Adam, Adam and I have always been extremely independent, even when we were in high school and college, and that's continued into our marriage. And for some reason, it just works for us. I don't really have a big theory as to why that is, but uh, we both have our own ambitions and we're pretty happy to let each other kind of experience those. What makes Catalyst so wonderfully unique? Catalyst is at its core a social justice intervention into a specific industry, which happens to be the wedding industry. And why racism and sexism are a critical part of our exploration into modern love. All of these political issues we're talking about, like, really live in us. They, like, they live in our love stories and in our sex lives and in our marriages. All that and more on today's episode of Avowed. Liz, I am so thrilled to welcome you to the Avowed Podcast. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me, Jasmine. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for facilitating this partnership with Catalyst. I am so unbelievably honored to be working with you and your team in our mutual quest to evolve the cultural conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Um, You're obviously a very like-minded person who asks really good questions, and I think it's such a good fit. So we're just really excited to promote what you're doing. Thank you so much. And I was just realizing how absolutely fitting it is to be talking to you on International Women's Day. Yes, it is. (laughs) Are you guys celebrating in the office there? Oh, gosh, I wish I could say we were doing something awesome, but we are just working. (laughs) Yeah. In red lipstick. (laughs) In pajamas. (laughs) Oh, well, that's, yeah. I mean, I think that's just as feminist, (laughs) if not more, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess let's start with a little bit of how you ended up where you are. You told me a bit about your entry into the wedding industry, but I'd love to hear the full story about 
how you ended up wedding planning and then um, moving that into Catalyst Wedding Magazine. Yeah. Um, so I moved around a lot in my adult life, which created significant career disruption and opportunities to start something new. And so my background is in gender studies. And I was teaching women's studies in Colorado to community college students and university students. And my husband, Adam, and I moved to Washington, D.C. And it took me quite a long time to find a full-time job. And so in the meantime, since I'm a busybody, I was working retail and I was working at Paper Source, actually. And a couple women came in who were wedding planners. And I remember those moments really distinctly because the first one who came in was young. And it was the first moment for me that I can remember that I realized that one could be an entrepreneur. You could actually start your own business and work for yourself. And that was a light bulb moment for me. And the second one who came in was significant because she was super cool. And that was the first time I realized that <laughs> people working in the wedding industry could be cool. She had like a cool haircut and red lipstick and a nose ring. And I was just like, all right, this woman is awesome. And I kind of told her I was really interested in what she was doing and how she was working for herself, but also doing something really creative. And she worked primarily to plan weddings for same-sex couples. And she ended up referring clients to me, which was super awesome. And I kind of scrambled to uh, provide services for these people to be a day of coordinator for these kind of low-key, down-to-earth couples in D.C., so that was sort of my entrance into the industry. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like um, it seems like a really old industry from like, at least it did even a few years ago. Now, I think um, with social media, we get the sense that it is becoming more about young entrepreneurs and um, artistry and people really pushing the boundaries. But I can understand from an outside perspective, being that it is such an antiquated institution, how it would be really shocking to see like a young hip woman planning weddings and being like oh oh my gosh this is <laughs> actually part of our modern world as well and not just run by people who still believe in this really heteronormative um <laughs> yeah vision of marriage totally and I know that you're in Montana I'm from Ohio so I had planned my wedding in Ohio and um it was kind of like the height of the DIY movement. So we didn't hire mm -hmm. a lot of vendors, but I think I just had in the back of my mind that vendors in the wedding industry probably wouldn't be that like-minded to me. So I kind of wanted to do it myself. So definitely being on the East Coast, that was also a new introduction into kind of this new wave of wedding vendors that you mentioned of people who are artists really applying their art and their values in in this new wave of wedding. And also, I imagine, I feel like you and I both had a bit of a sink or swim kind of introduction into it as well. Like, um, I don't know, I, f I still struggle with feeling like a fraud, but um, especially when I first got into the industry, being that I wasn't drawn to it like a moth to a flame, like somebody who you know, was eat, sleep and breathing weddings and had always dreamed of it from the time I was a little girl. Like it was, um, it, it felt especially alien to me. And I felt like I was going to get found out the whole time, <laughs> pretty much since day one. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely felt 
very self-conscious, particularly in my women's studies community. Even when I got engaged, I really didn't want people to know. It's common in that community, especially pre the legalization of same-sex marriage, to be extremely critical, and rightly so, of marriage and the wedding industry and how it exploits women and um, pushes these patriarchal ideas. So I was very self-conscious in that community, and then I assumed that the wedding community would be full of people who just accepted all of those beliefs at face value without engaging with them critically, but that's not really the case. For sure. I feel like for quite a while, at least with my personal group of friends when I first moved into the wedding industry I felt like a lot of the conversations I was having were with people that were shocked that I was moving in that direction and then I was sort of making a lot of I don't know if their excuses so much as just being like oh well yeah I mean weddings because of x y and z but also I'm not even sure how I feel about marriage and like weddings are crazy right and um (laughs) and I mean for me the reason that I got into the industry in the first place was because of the artistic potential. And I think it was, I guess this must have been four years ago. So it was really right. I would say when um, wedding publications were, I don't know, starting to take a new shape and there was a lot more artistry, um, at least being broadcast in a public sphere. And so it felt like the right time to jump in, but I still, had no idea what I was walking into. And I didn't even realize, I mean, I live in a wedding destination place. People come from all over to get married here and I had no idea. So the wedding industry in Montana, I think people assume because it's Montana, it's going to be really bodunk. And to be fair, there is an absolutely preposterous amount of burlap and mason jars, (laughs) but is an incredibly thriving and surprisingly large wedding industry here. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think vendors who are willing to engage with these traditions more critically are really the people who are affecting change on people getting married, because a lot of people who get engaged, um, you know, maybe haven't been thinking all that much about their weddings. And all of a sudden, they have like, a year or whatever to plan this event, and it can be overwhelming, and they can get sucked into like the check list, to-do list, budgeting of what most wedding media tells you a wedding is. And it's really those vendors who I think can engage people to think differently and express themselves and have a more intentional planning process. And I I think that there's still a fair amount of fear from a vendor's perspective about feeling comfortable enough to start that dialogue sometimes because you know, culturally, we really award brides kind of carte blanche to behave however they want and like that this is their princess moment and that they should have anything and everything, even if it's, you know, not within the realm of possibility um, and just kind of protecting their fantasy at all costs. And I love um, what your publication is and what I'm hoping to do with this podcast, which is you know, empowering people in the industry to have more honest conversation with their clients so that we can avoid all of that because I think everybody benefits from that honest dialogue. Totally. And I think they're, I think the majority of people getting married are not like women who are inclined to be bridezillas. 
I, like the egalitarian marriage model it has surpassed the traditional model for marriage. I really think it's like the industry that can sweep people away. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So tell me about um, birthing the idea for Catalyst. Like what was the spark that ignited this fire in you? Um, it was just me wrestling with the industry myself. I wrote an article called Is It Possible to Have a Feminist Wedding, which was published on Offbeat Bride, in which I reflected on this like very serious internal contradiction I felt around really, really enjoying the process of planning my own wedding with my husband, um, while also pretty much being in grad school for women's studies and teaching women's studies classes where I'm talking to students about the history of um, patriarchal marriage. And so I was just trying to hash that out for myself. Um, Carly Romeo is a wedding photographer in Richmond, Virginia, who is also a feminist um, and also has a women's studies background. And she read the article and reached out to me. And we decided to meet. And it was just a really refreshing moment to meet someone like-minded with the same exact questions. And being in the South, Virginia's wedding industry still looks pretty traditional in comparison with like some of the major cities on the coasts. Um, We definitely felt like our conversation was somewhat radical and we wanted to see if other people felt the same way. So we ended up planning a workshop, which we cheekily titled Unconvention. And we invited uh, diverse and like-minded wedding professionals to this event where we tried to open up some of these conversations around traditions and gendered expectations and consumerism in weddings. And we also collectively styled a same-sex couple and everyone participated in the shoot. Everyone brought items. All the photographers shot it and it was kind of like our, it was our political statement without being extremely overt. But we found that it was also well received that that's when we started playing with the idea of reaching a broader audience and started getting a little bit more comfortable throwing around the F word feminist um, in the wedding space. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you still do the unconvention. I actually... I mean, before we ever spoke or before I even started the podcast, I've been really wanting to go to the unconvention. Yeah, we do. Um, We've had four of them, and our fifth one is coming up at the end of April in London. So we've traveled from Richmond to Brooklyn to San Francisco, back to Richmond, and it's been a really useful way to actually build a community in person because we have this like great digital community. I feel like I know so many people online who I've never met, but actually meeting people face to face is a completely different experience. And I think it's really helped build Catalyst to be what it is today. I'm sure it has. I, I know the, the internet, um, the social media connections that we make are so interesting because you do feel like you have this real genuine connection with someone and you've like never actually met them or spoken to them even on the phone. And it's, I mean, the interview that I just conducted and put out there, it was so interesting because it felt like so intimate. And, um, and I love that even though social media can feel really disconnected in some ways, it can facilitate I don't know, meeting somebody like that, that you wouldn't otherwise have any kind of 
relationship with. And then, you know, if you're the type of person who is capable of following through and creating like a real tangible connection with them in person, I think that it's such a unique way to begin a relationship. Yes. (laughs) And we live in a Tinder world, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's a funny thing talking to people who are dating right now. And your fish pond is so much bigger than it was (laughs) when you had to rely on running into people in the classroom or at work or at a bar. And now, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's wild. All of the connections that are being made across our world and our country that would otherwise not exist. I think technology is such a double-edged sword, but that really is the the finer edge of that sword to me. Yeah. Have you read Aziz Ansari's book? I haven't. I love Aziz Ansari, but I haven't actually read his book. I've listened to all of his stand-up and, of course, seen Masters of Men. Yeah, his book is great and how he, he like dives into this whole new technological realm of dating and how, you know, most of our grandparents probably met and married someone within, you know, a couple mile circumference of where they lived. And today that is just not the case, but it can be overwhelming too. (laughs) I'm curious, you had mentioned in your email to me that you have a very unconventional marriage situation on your hands as well. Um, How did you meet your husband? Oh, that's flattering. I would like to say that I had a very unconventional marriage situation. (laughs) Um, I don't know if it's very unconventional, but we have been together for 15 years, actually. Um, And I'm 29, so you can do the math. (laughs) Holy crap. You are probably the only person I know who's been in a relationship longer than me who's like almost the same age. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah. So we like met in high school. (laughs) At band camp. Yeah. Oh, my God. At band camp. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. We actually met the summer before I entered high school. So. Wow. Yeah. We've been together a long time. And I think what I mentioned to you is that we've done a lot of long distance during our marriage, um, which has seemed somewhat unconventional to the people around us. But I think it's quite common. So since we got married... I don't know, maybe about half of our marriage has been long distance, maybe a little less. And I think that's becoming more and more common for couples who are trying to balance two adults' career paths and dreams. And they aren't always in sync and they aren't always hand in hand. And it takes some, you know, puzzling and figuring out how to make it all work. Yeah, absolutely. What is his, um, what's his situation? Where is he living most of the time these days when you're where you are? So right now we're both in Virginia, but that being said, we have done distance because he has been moved around quite a bit for his job. So when we moved from Colorado to DC, we lived there for about a year and a half when his job moved him to Houston. And I just was not ready to leave. Um, Catalyst had just been, we had just launched our magazine. I was building really good community in DC and I just knew I wasn't ready. Um, So I pitched the idea to him that I hang back and he was fine with that. And that's the first time we tried it. So we moved out of our apartment. He went to Houston. I moved into a group house with a bunch of other people doing social justice projects in DC and it was a great experience. So I stayed a couple months and then I ended up 
going to Colorado for a while to take some time to myself and do a yoga teacher training, actually, before I finally landed in Houston. And once I was there, um, we were doing some creative living situations, living with um, (laughs) (laughs) different people, because we decided we really wanted to save money so he could leave his job and we were going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, which was his dream. Yeah. Um, So we lived like in a co-op. We lived in a house with a bunch of divorces. Then we ended up living with an acquaintance that I met whose sister had randomly moved out. So we moved around quite a bit in Texas before I decided for myself that nothing was really clicking for me there. And so I was ready to leave. Um, So he stayed and I left. I went to Colorado again and did some freelance work for a magazine, um, did some traveling, and then we met up to hike the trail. And it was about four months into the trail that I decided (laughs) I, that the scales had shifted for me where I was glad I had the experience, but I was missing Catalyst so much and really knew it was time for me to go. And my creative director was having a similar shift in her life and decided to quit her full-time job and invited me to move in with her. So I left the trail, went to Virginia, and moved in with her and her husband, actually, and um, ended up going to meet Adam at the end of the trail. We took two months to road trip and see friends and come back to Virginia. So now it's like we call it the like Catalyst Commune because <laughs> every our personal lives and Catalysts are extremely intertwined at this point. Um, it's like a very interesting situation because Jen's husband is working. Jen and I work full-time on Catalyst and Adam does like a lot of the housework and cooking and cleaning and projects while he's looking for work. So that's where we are at the moment. Well, first of all, four months in is not bad. You were on the trail for that long. That's wild. I can't even. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I was kind of a whiner the whole time, so (laughs) I don't really feel like I deserve any credit. (laughs) Well, I mean, speaking as a fellow whiner, Patrick, my my man can attest to that. Uh, I'm trying to get better at it. But um, yeah, he wants to like take me on a four day backpacking trip. And I'm like, are you kidding me? All right. (laughs) I'm gonna strap on my big girl pants and see if I can handle four days. So four months to me sounds bananas. So um, you'll get you'll get kudos from me if no one else for that one. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I'm sure, um, especially after like having a back and forth, living in two different places, kind of a relationship that must have been such a enormous change of pace to suddenly be spending every minute together for four months straight. I mean, I can't handle spending for or every minute together with anybody, <laughs> even even Patrick. <laughs> Yeah, it was like a totally interesting experience because a lot of people, you know, would make these sly, snide comments about couples on the trail and how hard it is and how much you'll argue and bicker and whatnot. Um, I would say that Adam and I have a lot of kind of like bickering in day-to-day life, but for some reason on the trail that just wasn't present. Um, I think it's because 
Adam, that's Adam's like dream life and he was definitely at his best. And so he was really willing to accommodate me because it was hugely challenging for me. I don't really identify with like delighting in physical exertion or challenge. I'm yeah. way more in my head. <laughs> totally. um, I've always, um, when I was growing up, I always thought of myself as like a house cat. I, <laughs> I've, I've like learned how to be more of an outdoor cat to be sure. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I feel like your that dynamic and your relationship very much is in line with the dynamic in my relationship. Patrick is a big, outdoorsy person he loves you know backcountry hiking and um all of that sort of stuff and I'm really trying to teach myself how to be more I don't know yeah how to enjoy that space and not feel like I'm just slogging my way through it and like for him you know (laughs) yeah I feel the same way I was getting so frustrated with myself over the course of the hike because I could not kind of quiet my mind like the physical challenge would like agitate my body and then it would agitate my mind and I spent so many hours of every day just having entrepreneur brain that I couldn't turn off that I was thinking about catalyst and I mean I was even carrying a tablet with me working like in Google apps offline in my tent like I definitely (laughs) no one hiking understood me And no one back at Catalyst, like, understood either. It was a very weird middle space to be in. Yeah. I have entrepreneur mind, too. I'm, like, I feel like I'm just constantly generating. I call myself, like, a serial entrepreneur because I just can't shut that shit down. Like, I am just constantly generating new business concepts. And if I'm not choosy and careful about it, I think I would have, like, 30 businesses on my hands right now. Totally. Um, Yeah. And it's really hard for me to shut my brain off in any situation. But I think there is this assumption that when you're in nature, like if you're in it long enough, naturally everything will just be at one. And it's like, no, no, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not at one. (laughs) I still really need to like write all of this shit down and like, yeah, brainstorm and, um, and collaborate too. I mean, I think when I, when I consider the situation that you're in with Jen in this house and um, I don't know, collaboration is something that's so near and dear to me. And that would be such a wonderful part of putting together a publication like you guys are doing and being able to riff off of each other. And I feel like if I was you on, you know, the trail for four months, I would really miss that. Yeah, we had been rem- we had always worked remote um, because we had never all been in the same city. Uh, Carly's in Richmond. I was in DC and Jen's in Charlottesville, Virginia. So it's it's like a triangle of cities. Um, so we were pretty, like I had actually only met Jen five times in person, um, running the company over a couple years before I moved in with her. Um, so it was a, I knew I loved working with her. We have very similar work styles, um, which I'm, unfortunately it's like workaholism, (laughs) but we both, we both get stuff done, you know? And so, yeah, that's pretty much all I knew about her before I moved in. And it's, it's worked out really well for us. I think Adam and I are very willing to give up a lot of comforts or like traditional expectations of 30 year olds in a marriage (laughs) to be able to live a little more creative, you know, life giving life. Yeah. 
I I'm in the same camp. Um, I mean, Patrick and I live together, but I I tend to make a point of leaving on my own, you know, for a couple of weeks here and there, just to go visit my sister in the Bay or something like that, just because I, you know, I grew up in this town and um, and I start to get really um it starts to feel really small sometimes <laughs> and I love my relationship and my life and my dog and everything and my house but um it's so important for me to have that space to myself and the older that I get the more I really value that personal space and that time and I think that there's certainly a brand of connection a brand of um relationship that can really thrive in that space and be stronger for those times apart. And then really when you are together being present in that, because when you're around somebody all the time, I think it can be really easy to take them for granted. Yeah. So at this stage of my life, I pretty much believe that you can't really understand anyone's relationship. And I definitely know mine is a bit baffling from the outside because Adam and I have always been extremely independent, even when we were in high school and college. And that's continued into our marriage. And for some reason, it just works for us. I don't really have a big theory as to why that is, but Uh, We both have our own ambitions and we're pretty happy to let each other kind of experience those. Um, Although I do always, you know, really value people who are in relationships where they just like love being together, could be together 24-7. I find that very sweet, but it's certainly not the kind of relationship that I have. (laughs) Yeah, well, you're lucky you found each other um, (laughs) because I've definitely known people who existed in either one of those camps that ended up falling in love and it was pretty damn hard. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the magazine and um, I love what you were telling me about having this board of community ambassadors and um, I guess I'm just curious like what the inner workings of Catalyst look like kind of. So Catalyst has been this really beautiful thing that we created, but then has come to have its own life. And ultimately, I feel like has changed me for the better. I think um, taking my ego and the founder's egos out of it has been really beneficial for the project um, to the degree that that's possible. Because Catalyst is at its core a social justice intervention into a specific industry, which happens to be the wedding industry. And we, you know, exist to increase diverse representation of people of color and same-sex couples and people of varying body sizes, um, different gender expressions who are largely invisible in wedding media. And we share their stories and we show beautiful photos of them getting married and being in love. And I am white and I'm married to a man. And those are privileges that many of the people in our community don't necessarily have. And our founding team has found it critical to have diverse voices, not just from writers and photographers whose work we show, but also on the leadership level. I know that I've had some missteps where I've been kind of blind to, you know, 
pieces that had like subtle microaggressions in them, even though I think of myself as like very attuned to those things, privilege can create these blind spots. And so it's necessary to have a sounding board of people who are invested in the project, whose work is amazing and we can highlight and whose voices we want in the leadership and direction of Catalyst, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense being um, aware of how your words carry narrative and history and all of that. It's, I think it's a really difficult thing for people to navigate right now. There's so many things and they were always, um, they were always issues, right? But we just weren't talking about them. We weren't calling them by name. And I think so much of the pushback that you hear these days about people really responding to a presidency that is encouraging people to take back their racism, more or less, right? And mm-hmm. um, and not have to be politically correct. I think so many people who, I don't know, so many people are responding to that because it's at, at the end of the day, it's a much easier thing to do, right? Because tiptoeing around all this stuff or figuring out how to have these conversations and how to be um, receptive to other people and how to admit that you don't know what the fuck you're talking about all of the time and invite other people to teach you is a way harder road <laughs> than exactly to just say whatever you want whenever you want and say like well I don't give a shit about being politically correct I don't have to anymore or whatever you know I mean yeah it's like it's really really important to me and to our team that we demonstrate how to be anti-racist white allies. And a lot of that is humility and acknowledging that you don't know everything and you're not always right. I think political correctness can do harm in some ways because a lot of people that I grew up around and went to school with and in my women's studies classes and whatnot were white people who really, really valued kind of their progressive badge and being politically correct but when your ego's involved on that level, you're not always willing to just like shut up and listen or admit when you're wrong. And I think that's just of complete importance when you're an ally is to sit back and listen and absorb and like not run to your defense mechanisms or try to prove that you're a good white person or that you're not racist. Like, yeah. you know, these biases and you know, our preferences live deep, deep, deep inside of us in our subconscious. And we are, you know, we're all kind of guilty in that. Absolutely. I think the defense mechanism, you know, that that feeling of what you're talking about with white people trying to prove their um, that they're great allies <laughs> and uh, defending their words or, you know, backpedaling and saying like, oh, no, no, that's not what I mean. Or like, I'm not racist. I have black friends or whatever it is, you know, all, there's all of the tropes um, out there of like how white people defend themselves in those situations. But that humility piece and recognizing that you're not always right and that more than likely you're mostly not right. Just being willing to um, admit that you don't know everything. I think that's a really hard thing for Americans to do in general. There's a huge pride piece to our country and um, and not kind of stepping outside of yourself enough to to allow other people to influence you. Yep. Yep. Definitely. I mean, I'm not even sure how to put a lot of that into words because I feel like I need to work harder at um, 
I don't know, my vocabulary and figuring out how to talk about a lot of these things because I feel like it's it makes sense in my head in certain ways. But again, this is this is one of those opportunities where I can say, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about all the time <laughs> and absolutely willing and ready and, you know, very much wanting to invite other people into my world who can give me that vocabulary and that dialogue. I think Running Catalyst has taught me the lesson that it's okay to be uncomfortable like being uncomfortable is not wrong it's not something to try to escape or alleviate immediately I think in women's studies world I I have all the academic language at my disposal to discuss all of these issues and it's really easy to lean on that but running a business based on these values is a completely different beast and has brought me so much closer to the essence of the ideas rather than just intellectualizing them. And a lot of times it's just, it's just like feeling and you're like being aware in your body of like your bodily reactions to a situation. And you're like, Oh wow, I'm really uncomfortable, you know, with this person's anger or with this person's response to me. But rather than like jumping to defend or intellectualize, sometimes it's just better to like sit with it and grow And so I I feel like Catalyst has helped to transform me into a much better ally than I would have been by just continuing to intellectualize all of the issues. For sure. Yeah, discomfort, um, it sounds so mild. The word sounds pretty mild, but um, it's kind of amazing our general reaction to discomfort, especially white people in this country have had it's so easy (laughs) the whole time it's it's just amazing when you realize that so much of what's happening right now is a direct result of people experiencing discomfort for the first time in their white lives and then being feeling really um ignored and angry about it and it's like yeah welcome to even just a (laughs) fraction (laughs) like literally just a fraction of the discomfort that everyone else has been feeling forever (laughs) exactly and like that it's such a sign of privilege that you know it's taken this uh, the election of trump to wake a lot of white people up when it's like black women turned out on mass to vote for hillary because they knew what was at stake i know because they live it you know and so it's just privilege creates such a margin for comfort where you can turn a blind eye to so many things until it's just like right up in your face. <laughs> yeah. And I think that all of that is a direct lead into this conversation about shame too, which is a really difficult piece of the equation that I'm constantly trying to navigate. Cause you know, like for the election specifically, I voted for Hillary and, and, you know, post election. I mean, <laughs> I cried the next day, like there had been a death in the family. I felt mm-hmm so sick to my stomach. Patrick and I literally were just crying the entire day. And, um, and then I was subsequently really, um, ashamed of my white woman camp that Mm -hmm. I exist in, um, and trying really hard not to say, well, I didn't vote for Trump, you know, and not, and trying really hard not to, um, fall into that, but also like shame. Um, I don't know. It's such an interesting human emotion. And I think it, can be really important in certain spaces, but I think primarily as a tool to get to the next space, which is empathy, right? Because shame can be just like this really deep hole that will lead to defense if you don't check it before it wrecks you. 
Exactly. I think the the really negative emotions play a really important role in social justice movements, but they can't like just exist alone. Like the the anger or the shame is like the response, but figuring out how to transform that into like important work and action and connecting with people and empathy and um, laying the groundwork for something better. That's like a whole other conversation, but you know, the response is step one because some people don't feel that at all, you know? Yeah. I don't know how. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. felt so much. And then I realized, you know, as I was processing all of those emotions, I, you know, and this was, again, this brought up a lot of shame, but I realized that I think a huge part of why I was feeling that, that wave of emotion, it felt like I uh, was like a, like a gate had been opened in me and suddenly I felt everything like all of the pain and all of the um all of the abuse that other people had been facing i i experienced again just a fraction of it like a fraction of the fear that other people live with their entire lives and it floored me and i was so ashamed of myself because you know i'm like a liberal like you know quote unquote woke white woman or whatever but but I'm also not because it did take the election for me to kind of get into high gear you know I think that in many ways I had been advocating for people of color and and women and all of these you know different people but without really like putting that word and that intention into action and and so it was like, yeah, you feel the shame, you realize what you did wrong, and then you figure out how to move forward and be better at what you do instead of just letting shame be the cornerstone of how you move forward. Exactly. Yeah, I think there have actually been a lot of silver linings to this election as far as, you know, first of all, it's made clear many of the things that minorities in this country have always known to be true that the dominant group continues to deny. They continue to deny to deny that racism still exists or homophobia exists or xenophobia Mm -hmm. exists. And now, you know, that reality has been laid out very clearly. But also people have band together in so many, like, really, really hopeful ways. And I think the voices of those communities are speaking louder and clearer. And I hope that what comes out of this is we learn how to really practice intersectionality and we start to really embody what that means, understanding that all of our individual issues are all connected, you know, like our environmental activism is connected to reproductive rights, is connected to reforming immigration, like all of these things are completely interconnected. We have to stand up for each other and stand together. Yeah, absolutely. I am 100% on board with that. It's um it's such a difficult space to be in right now. But but you're right. There is like just a lot of silver linings to it when you get down to it. I guess when the dust settled and um and I was thinking a lot about the situation and really trying to find that silver lining in order to just like power through the depression stage <laughs> of grief. Um it occurred to me that like this war had been waging the whole time and that if nothing else, this was um, this was like how you recruit everybody who thought that the war was over in the first place. Right. Like all of the people exactly. who really care about these things, but didn't have any legitimate interaction with it and therefore assumed that 
we had moved past the bulk of that racism, sexism, xenophobia. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's like we all woke up and and we were like, oh, I guess we should probably join the ranks. This war is happening and we need to strap on our battle gear and get out there because they always needed us, but they especially need us now. Totally. And I think that this whole process has really helped clarify the catalyst mission too for us, which is that we realize that all of these political issues we're talking about, like really live in us. They like, they live in our love stories and in our sex lives and in our marriages. I mean, we are living these politics out. And so, so many people have these really deeply personal narratives that if they're willing to share can create a bridge and can create a moment of empathy for someone who maybe didn't understand that issue. Like for instance, we've been highlighting people's reproductive stories. So we had a member of our community who bravely decided she wanted to share her abortion story um, given the political climate, because when there's so much shame making these stories completely invisible, then once again, we're just intellectualizing these ideas of, reproductive rights when many people have very intimate experiences with those choices and by hearing those stories I mean that can like really change a person's mind and see why uh choice in this case is so important yeah I think oftentimes it's the only method by which to change people's minds because facts facts are not sexy enough (laughs) at the end of the day to get through to somebody, right? I mean, you can spew facts at somebody all you want and um, you're never going to build a bridge of communication with them. And I think that love and marriage and weddings, but love especially, um, has such a unique way of unifying all of us. We all experience it in one way or another. And I think that you guys are really smart to use love stories and those personal, um, you know, really intimately personal situations like you're talking about with reproductive rights, those stories um, humanize those those experiences and those efforts. It's really, it's super easy in our country um, when you're living in a bubble, as most of us are, you know, we surround mm-hmm. ourselves with people that think like us and that's a double-edged sword because it's wonderful to be having conversations <laughs> with people that think like you. But it yes. also means that you have no idea how to talk to people that live outside of that bubble who don't believe in those same things. And I'm always um, in awe of diplomacy and people who are able to uh, communicate things in a way that really get through to somebody that that can't, you know, that has just a completely different belief system. And more often than not, the way that I see that happening is through vulnerability, through exposing something really personal and vulnerable about yourself, which is literally the last thing that you want to do when you're trying to convince somebody that doesn't think like you uh, to embrace something that is really uncomfortable for them. But I think vulnerability is like kind of the only way to do that, right? To relate to them and to create that space for empathy so that they realize that you're a human being just like them. And love, it's so universal. And I think as such is 
one of the best ways in which to create that connectivity and that empathy. Yes. I recently heard someone use the term like-hearted and it really resonated with me. And it's been something that I've been thinking a lot more about as, you know, sometimes the people that you're like-minded with are a different group of people than the ones that you're like-hearted with. And those like-hearted emotional connections create a really unique space to become more like-minded when you're able to trust and connect with a person then it's much more possible to also exchange ideas in a fruitful, effective, (laughs) productive way rather than just two minds battling. Yeah, particularly in a country where 50% of us um, really value intellectualism and the other 50% is like deeply offended by intellectualism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Like we can't use intellectualism to bridge that gap. It has to be, Mm -hmm. it has to be through the heart and yeah I really like that like-hearted that's really good yeah so um yeah the evolution of Catalyst is really fascinating to me because you know when you first came out it was feminist seemed to be like the the main you know aspect of what you were trying to put out there and I think it seems to have evolved so much and taken on so many more spaces and um is that mostly because you invited those other people into that conversation Very much. I mean, I think we started thinking, you know, this was intersectional feminism and it and we weren't living it. It's it's different to live it um, than to think it. Yes. And through conversations with people in our community, we learned that the word feminism was alienating specifically women of color who have this history of being excluded by the feminist movement, by the women's movement that's been dominated by white women and white women's issues. Um, And I mean, the Women's March in D.C. was a good example of some of those conversations taking place. I attended and there were lots of white ladies there. And there was a lot of criticism of, you know, all these white women turning out for the Women's March when the majority of white women did not vote for Hillary. Yeah. So we have to be able to talk about race in the same spaces that we're talking about gender, especially given this political environment in which like racism seems to be underlying the majority of what's happening in policy. So we started backing away a little bit from using the word feminist, not because we aren't, um, but just because we need to be able to speak the language of our readers and of our community and of the people we want to elevate um, to be effective. I, I think being truly diverse and truly intersectional means not just showing images or writing of people of color, but also using the correct language that resonates with those people and also having those people in leadership of an organization. Um, I think it's, it's threefold. And so it's just been an Um, it's as we learn and develop as people, so does Catalyst. I have a lot of respect for what you guys are doing. I think that it's got to be really difficult to toe all of those lines, but I think that it's so necessary and I applaud your ability to evolve in that space because, you know, speaking as somebody who started, you know, a podcast and a business and all these things, I think we live 
in a world right now where it feels like you need to come out of the gate knowing what you're doing and acing it from day one and having a really clear message and um and not yeah I, I don't know like there's no room for error it feels like in a lot of spaces these days and so I'm always really inspired by other women especially who are putting themselves out there and you know with businesses and publications and blogs and all of this who are willing to evolve like that and to rethink the original mission statement and say does this work actually <laughs> totally yeah I think letting the mission be the guide is the best thing <laughs> for evolving and I mean a lot of entrepreneurial advice is against that as far as like being on brand and, yeah, <laughs> and cohesive and it's like you know, yes, we are a business, but at, at the end of the day, the whole reason we're, you know, we created this business to begin with was because of this mission and this value system. And so that is what is primary. And if, you know, at the end of the day, I want to feel like that's what we did really well. That's what we nailed, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny in our culture. And I'm, I mean, I'd be curious how this, um, how this relates to other cultures around the world, but I feel like we have a real aversion to change and, um, and not just in business, but also in relationships. I feel like you hear in the movies all the time when people break up and they're like, you're not the person I fell in love with. <laughs> it's like, it's like, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> um, that person was young and naive and <laughs> had no idea what they were doing, but we don't, I don't know. We have this really linear narrative, this very ingrained narrative about, you know, being who you are and not changing and sticking to that. And it's just such bullshit. And I was really, I loved what you wrote in your email to me about the marriage contract. And part of what I found so interesting about what you were saying about your relationship is that you had always, you know, I guess sort of had divorce on the table more or less, right? Like realizing that that was a, that that not wasn't not an inevitability, but like that that was a part of life, like the, that we don't live in a fairy tale and that, you know, marriage vows are not um, written in stone on the stars, and like crafted from like the hand of God, you know? Do you know the podcast Two Dope Queens? Oh my God, do I ever. I love Two okay. Dope Queens. <laughs> they had a comedian on and I should be able to say who it is, but I don't remember her name. But she she like led with a joke that was like, I just got married. You know, everyone applauds. And she's like, now, you know, I've started really worrying about divorce. Like, what if I don't get one? <laughs> <laughs> and I like thought that was the most hilarious joke I've ever heard because I don't know that I could have gotten married if divorce was not a thing. I mean, I, I know that sounds like silly coming out of the mouth of someone who has been with the same partner since she was 14. But, you know, we both come from divorced families and I've never felt super romantic about like the essence of a partnership. I think the most beautiful thing about our partnership is that, you know, it's a choice. Like it's a choice to show up. It's a choice to try to evolve together. It's a choice to try to argue and disagree well. And the fact that we choose that is what makes it really beautiful. But there could be a day where, you know, for our own personal 
development and well-being and health as people, like the partnership is no longer the healthiest choice. Yeah. And like, that's, that's just a reality. And, um, I want to know that, you know, we're always free to evolve and grow and be our best selves. And hopefully that means showing up for each other every day, but, you know, not necessarily. I've been with Patrick for 10 years, but we're not married. And I often joke that we're not going to get married. We're just going to have like a, like come celebrate that we've been in love for a really long time. And also that we're going to continue to love each other indefinitely until it doesn't make sense anymore. Party. (laughs) Exactly. That that'll be our (laughs) celebration because um, yeah, the, the loving somebody forever thing, you know, sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. And it's going to take a lot of adjustment and compromise and it's not always going to be easy. And that picture perfect soulmate situation. I mean, I went through a, I went through a phase in middle school, of course, in high school, but predominantly middle school where I read a lot of, you know, teen romance novels and, um, and for, for much of high school, I was like soulmates. It's real. I'm, I've got one. There's just one. How the fuck am I going to find them? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Those odds are stacked against me. It felt, um, really real. And then, you know, the older you get and, um, I mean, Patrick and I have been together for quite a while, but I, you know, I definitely had quite a few pretty serious, although ultimately short-term boyfriends before before we were together. And I'm still pretty close with most of them. And, you know, it's like it got to the point where I felt like we have so many soulmates. We have so many people that are soulmates for seasons, right? <laughs> like these yeah. people who come into our lives yep. and um, and they're so critical in our personal evolution, but that the road is not you know, it's not a single lane. (laughs) It's many laned and there are several forks and we can go in so many different directions and, and that there are definitely people that, yeah, that become soulmates, but I think it is a choice. I'm of the mind at this point that I feel like we choose the people that we love. You know, we make that decision the first time that we ignite that relationship and then we make that decision over and over again. And we, make that decision when it sucks (laughs) and also when it's awesome yeah yeah hearing you talk is making me realize that um apparently I really like the idea of mission statements because (laughs) I I feel like that's the guide for catalyst but I also feel like it's the guide for myself and for my marriage or partnership like I you know I kind of have like my core values that I and I you know written them down I know what they are and there's so many things that come at you in life and so many choices and so many forks in the road. And so when those come, like, you know, I try to remember to sit with those values and use those as the guide to make the decision. And I feel like it works well for partnerships too. If you know that, you know, maybe the mission of your partnership is that you both grow to be your best selves you let that be the guide and you know if the if the marriage no longer serves that mission then you know it's time to maybe step away but it's much more easy said than done I like that a lot let's start a revolution of mission statements instead of vows (laughs) right (laughs) I think that makes so much more sense because vows have I don't know this really um 
I think unrealistic baseline. Um, yeah. I, even the most unique avant-garde boundary pushing weddings that I've been to still have vows where I feel like some of the things that they say, I'm like, are you, are you kidding yourself? You're like, like, good luck with that. (laughs) Right. Like I will love you no matter what. I will always like you. I'll stand by, you know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's so unrealistic to me (laughs) to have these vows that don't include any, um, any dialogue about change and, difficulty and when they do talk about difficulty it's in such an abstract sense so I think that I mean I'm all about mission statements instead of vows because at the end of the day they're really the same thing right your mission statement on your website is like your vow to like uphold this idea and to do the best that you can in moving forward yes Yes. and it's not gonna it's not gonna be perfect ever no it's not gonna be perfect there's this author that we work with and I love her. Her name's Vicki Larson and she wrote a book called The New I Do and she's currently working on the legislative level to try to push for shorter marriage contracts that would be like five years long, for instance, and then you would always have the option to renew the contract and she argues that that would be so much more romantic. It really lays the groundwork for an intentional relationship where communication is flowing freely, where you're checking in with each other rather than like taking for granted this eternal commitment and slowly beginning to resent each other until you're old, you know? Yeah, no, I think that makes so much more sense. (laughs) Yeah, and her book's amazing, and she really emphasizes just like the massive value of communication in a healthy relationship, Mm -hmm. but how much we really minimize that and like what our ideas of romance are, you know, like popping the question to surprise the person. Do you want to marry me? I mean, that's insane. It's insane. (laughs) Shock. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) I want to marry you. Like, give me your answer right now. And it better be the one I'm hoping for or everything's falling apart. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Proposals are whack. (laughs) I mean, they're like sweet and romantic and like whatever. They touch my soul and give me the warm fuzzies. But at the same time, like, yeah, being blindsided like that. I mean, some people are and some people aren't. And then you've also got like those people that um, want so desperately to get married and then they're just mm-hmm. like dropping hint bombs all the time. And, mm-hmm. and then the other person's <laughs> feeling the pressure. And like, maybe I fall into that camp sometimes. Let's be honest. <laughs> sure. But um, none of us are perfect. No, no, I try, but failing. It's way easier to critique these things than to live them you know I mean like when you said I have a non-traditional relationship like I wish I could give myself that badge but there's so many ways in which you know my relationship is gendered and whatnot but again it's like it's different to think critically about something than to live it. You know, uh, we, sh- yes. we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> if I have your blessing. <laughs> I think um, that actually that brings up a good thing for me because I, when I was starting this podcast and I was thinking about why I wanted to do this and I realized um, that there's sort of this, this issue of permission. I think we are always, at the end of the day, the only person the only permission that we need is from ourselves, but we tend to value the permission of other people significantly more than our own. And, um, you know, whether it's like there's a party that you committed to going to, but you really just want to stay in in your pajamas and watch the Great British Baking Show. Yeah. And and in your mind, you're like, nope, I have to go. Like I said, I was going, I have to go. And then one of your friends is like, fuck that, don't go. And you're like, oh my God, you're right. I don't have to go. <laughs> um, and I think that that, 
permission applies to so many pieces of our lives. Sometimes it just takes another person stepping up and saying, yeah, no, just say no. It's okay. It doesn't matter. And I think that that's a huge part of what Catalyst is doing. And also what I'm hoping to do with this podcast is to give people permission to say, fuck it. And to look inside and say, like, is this what I want? Does this make sense for me? What what do I want and what does that look like? Because if it doesn't look like this thing that I've been force fed my entire life, that means I get to reinvent the wheel a little bit. And that's exciting. Um, And I see it happen all the time in weddings where people sort of follow this checklist and they don't they don't even stop to consider that they don't have to that there's nobody like holding a gun to their head saying that they have to have escort cards. And like on the flip side, I like hesitate um, to be like the last thing I want Catalyst to do is to create the feminist Olympics where it's like, you know, all of my choices are feminist. Oh, of course. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, like that's also a bunch of BS. And Agreed. I think the bigger question is like, yeah, what do you want? What is meaningful to you? And I mean, I just had an interesting conversation with a friend who was like, what is a feminist wedding? At my wedding, I wanted the big princess dress because I grew up in, you know, a shitty home. And that was my way of like claiming my space and loving myself and like performing radical self-care. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, there's so many perspectives and experiences. And the last thing I want to do is dominate that conversation by creating new benchmarks of what it means to be feminist or progressive or intentional. Yeah. Yeah. When you say like, what is a feminist wedding in my mind? I just think a feminist wedding is one in which you are intentional about the decisions that you're making Mm -hmm. and that you're not just checking things off of a list in order to achieve some, you know, cultural vision of wedding day perfection or marital perfection. Yes. And like our weddings are definitely representative of our developmental stages as well. Oh, yeah. I got married when I was 25 and I, you know, Adam and I planned what was a very, very intentional, very unique and different wedding compared to anything we had seen um, together. And now, you know, four years later, I would do things differently, but it's because I'm, we're growing, we're getting older, we have, you know, our values are shifting, I would have cared a lot less about the burlap and mason jars, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would argue that this is another great reason why the five-year marital contract makes sense because exactly. then it's not like this huge bonanza that you're spending an inordinate amount of money on and then being in debt for the rest of your life because of it's like the stakes are lower. And what if you got to have another wedding every five years? Like, <laughs> What if you got to have another awesome celebration and be like, okay, now we're in this stage of our life. What does getting married right now look like? Yes. And I completely agree with that thesis because weddings are right now kind of like the one shot we have to have this like really meaningful ritual and like the the moments in society where we have permission to celebrate and to have those rituals are very gendered and traditional moments like around getting married or a baby shower for having a baby. Um, And like if we created more moments for celebration, the pressure would be off of that singular 
life-altering choice to commit your life to someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, in all of this, I've definitely um, assessed my own motivations. You know, do I want to get married? Why do I want to get married? And like the thing that I keep coming back to is that I feel like I am already married and really what I want is a celebration. And I don't even know that I want a wedding. I want a celebration because being in love and making it work for as long as we have is an accomplishment Mm -hmm. and one of my life's greatest accomplishments. And, and then I think about, um, other celebrations in my life. I'm a big birthday person. I love birthdays. I love my birthday and I always have like a theme party or costumes or whatever. Um, so I definitely take advantage of that, but I never had like the milestones growing up, like the sweet 16 or the graduation party when I graduated from high school. I didn't walk at my graduation in university and I didn't have a party then. And so I think um, it's almost like there's some piece of me where I missed out on all of those things. And so I'm like, all right, I really deserve this one, though, you guys. (laughs) I deserve to have an awesome party to celebrate the fact that I love this person and that we're going to stick it out for as long as we possibly can. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'm all about more reasons for celebration. I agree. More reasons for parties. I think that's I think that should be our tagline for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and like we're out of tune with the seasons, we're out of tune with our bodies, we're out of tune with like developmental stages that we're you know, experiencing and leaving and I think just to, yeah, we're, we're getting back to just the concept of like a more intentional life, you know? Yeah. Yes. That's full of balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Probably sparklers. <laughs> As always, I have an accompanying blog post waiting for you over at jasminrlily.com. Thank you for your continued listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And if the mood should strike you, reach out and tell me about yourself. Success is a funny thing to contend with when it feels so obviously quantified by likes, shares, and listens. But hearing from you about how this podcast has touched your life is a far better measure of my success. I'm realizing more and more that this adventure I've set out on is without destination and defined instead by the connections that I make with you. So let's connect.